Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constan from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as a principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health and diabetes outcomes and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello, I'm Dave Aaron. I'm an endocrinologist and have been one for 40 years at the Cleveland VA Medical Center. I'm a professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve University and a member of Cardio's Team Best Practices, or in my own words, Team Potentially Better Practices, because whatever works has to work in your own context. Today's podcast will be focused on a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is hypoglycemia in individuals with diabetes. And we'll address the frequency and consequences, risk factors, and most important, practical management. With me is my partner in care and my partner in crime, Mary Julius. Mary is a registered dietitian and a certified diabetes educator at the Cleveland VA. We've worked together for many years. She comes with a distinct perspective. Mary, would you like to say hello? Yes, thank you, Dr. Aaron. My name's Mary Julius. I am a registered dietitian. I'm a certified diabetes care and education specialist, and I've been at the Cleveland VA for the last 10 years. I am particularly interested in research related to diabetes. I have been a member, a participant in the DCCT edict trial since 1982 because I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a teenager. So I have been a very strong advocate always for individuals with the diagnosis of diabetes. I've been a participant in the DCCT, the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial, since 1982. This particular trial was looking at the risk of microvascular complications in children and in teenagers with diabetes. And I can tell you from the standpoint of someone who takes care of people with diabetes, when Mary is helping and I ask for her assistance, she can provide a perspective that patients can really relate to. And I think that's really important. Well, what's hypoglycemia anyway? It's just a fancy schmancy term for low blood sugar. And the symptoms include weakness, shakiness, hunger, sweating, lightheadedness, and and a feeling of just not being quite right. And the symptoms depend upon the degree of hypoglycemia and the rate at which it occurs. Sometimes these are really vague. Mary, what's it like to have hypoglycemia? Well, first I will say that it's, it's very uncomfortable. You get very shaky, you get sweaty, dizzy. Um, there have been times when I've woken up to the paramedic squad standing next to me in, in my bedroom. It is very frightening and something that most people would like to avoid. 
within the DCCT, which is the Diabetes Control and Complication Trial, we were told that hypoglycemia is just to be expected and that it's part of good diabetes care. And I'm glad that we no longer see severe hypoglycemia as being just part of good diabetes care. In fact, I would argue it is definitely a part of not good diabetes care. I would agree. Unfortunately, hypoglycemia is very, very common far more common than it's usually recognized. At a big study in uh, Kaiser Permanente, uh, Northern California, 14,000 patients, at least one episode of hypoglycemia in the prior year in 11% of them. 11%, and that's severe. Unconsciousness requiring outside assistance. And of the patients who reported one of these, 8% had a documented ER visit or a hospitalization. It is common. Hypoglycemia from insulin and sulfonylureas is one of the most common reasons for an adverse drug event bringing a patient to a hospital. And it has real consequences. Coma, seizures. Some of my patients have died, I am sure, of hypoglycemia, and I've had a couple who've wrapped their cars around telephone poles when hypoglycemia developed during driving. And in our elderly population, we have to think about falls, which can result in hip fractures, which particularly in the elderly are not a good thing to have. It's also associated with dementia. Now, if you think about risk factors, hypoglycemia in its simplest understanding, there are two and only two causes. Either you not got enough glucose coming in, or you got too much glucose going out. That's it. There's nothing else. Now, as far as not enough coming in, well, glucose comes from two and only two places, outside you and inside you. So if you're not eating you are at higher risk for glucose. And if you don't match your intake with your insulin, for example, you have a much higher risk of developing hypoglycemia. Glucose coming from the inside, its availability is to a large extent regulated by insulin. There's a reason why runners carbo-load before they do a long run to develop, to build up their stores. And if there's too much insulin, that keeps glucose from the liver to going into the bloodstream. On the outside, certainly glucose can go outside you when you urinate, but that usually happens only at a, a relatively high level, so that's not an issue. Instead, glucose goes into the cells, and that's regulated to a very large extent by insulin. So if you have too much insulin relative to the amount of glucose, you're going to have hypoglycemia. Obviously, there are certain drugs that are predisposed to hypoglycemia, insulin and sulfonylureas. Those are the classics. Chronic kidney disease decreases insulin clearance, so insulin levels go up. That's a major cause of hypoglycemia. And of course, the more intensively you try to control glucose, the more likely you have hypoglycemia. And missing a meal is, is really key. Mary, you ever missed a meal? Oh, I have. The United States Department of Agriculture really looks at food security 
and food insecurity. Food secure families and food secure individuals are those that have access to enough food for an active, healthy life by all individuals in their household. In contrast, a food insecure household, well, they just don't have enough food to meet the needs of all the members of of the family. There are actually two categories that the United States Department of Agriculture defines as being food insecure. The first category is low food insecurity, where the quality of the food might be compromised. And the second category is very low food security, where not only the quality of food is compromised, but the quantity of food is simply insufficient. I am a mom. I have three kids. And a little over five years ago, I was going through a divorce and assets were frozen. You know, as much as I thought I could afford my life on my own, I was surprised to learn that I had to really cut my food budget. And indeed, there were times when food simply wasn't available. So at that time, I would say I was very, very food insecure. And I did indeed have a very, very bad hypoglycemic event. Fortunately, I wasn't in a motor vehicle accident. I kind of pulled in the middle of a street and put my car in park. Somebody noticed that my car was parked in the middle of an intersection. And believe it or not, the police came and the ambulance came. And when I woke up, I was in the ambulance and they had found in my cell phone um, the name of one of my kids who fortunately was able to drive and pick me up. But yeah, food insecurity is huge. When we look over time, we see that there are periods of greater or less food insecurity. In 2018, an estimated 11% of Americans were food insecure. But the statistics in the year 2020 with COVID and many people losing their jobs, we saw on television lines of cars waiting to get groceries, to get food. The 2020 statistics said that 921 million people were food insecure. Now, Dave, how many of those do you think might have had diabetes? 10% of Americans have the diagnosis of diabetes. That's right. So 921 million individuals were food insecure during 2020. If you think about where the prevalence of diabetes is the highest, lower socioeconomic groups, certain racial and ethnic groups, those are the people who are also tend to be the most food insecure. And as, as long as we're thinking about groups of, of patients, there are other risk factors to think about. For example, those with cognitive impairment, people who can't manage their own medications well, are going to be at increased risk. And of course, age and uh, comorbidities, not only chronic kidney disease, but other things. And finally, we have to think about what we as healthcare professionals do to our patients. We often want to keep people as close to normal glucose as it is possible to do safely. 
and I emphasize that word safely. Sometimes it's not so safe to do intensive glycemic control, and we say those patients are potentially overtreated. Another reason to think about overtreatment is that the benefits of treatment have to outweigh the risks of treatment. So that if you have someone who is very old and is not going to live long enough to benefit from the clear reduction in microvascular complications such as diabetic kidney disease, retinopathy, neuropathy, if they're not going to live long enough to get it, then intensive glycemic control brings risks without benefits. This has resulted in two major initiatives, one within the VA, but probably more important is the federal government's hypoglycemia safety initiative, which involves not only the FDA, but all of the relevant federal agencies, including the VA. Despite an effort to promote deintensification of glucose control in whom it is not appropriate, we're still overtreating a lot of patients. Underlying this is the critical point that when it comes to setting A1C targets, we have to individualize based on that particular person's context. And that context includes their age, their comorbidities, what kind of medications they're taking, and a wide variety of things. And Dave, I think that another thing that's really important beyond just the comorbidities is food insecurity. And asking the question, asking if within the last 12 months, if there was ever a time where their food ran out, this is the last week of the month. Yesterday, every single patient that I spoke to, 100% of them, when I asked if they had food in the house, they all said no. And so both of them had very elevated blood glucoses because they stopped taking their medications because they were so fearful of hypoglycemia. So there are a, you know, a variety of ways we can try to prevent hypoglycemia as clinicians in terms of the types of regimens that we use, minimizing insulin and sulfonylureas in vulnerable patients if it is possible, and it's not always possible, minimizing insulin regimen complexity it's critical the people we take care of who have diabetes need to know how to take care of themselves. Because if you think about it, there are 525,600 minutes in a year. A person interacts with the healthcare system for what? 100 minutes a year? 200 minutes a year? Who's taking care of them the other 525,400 minutes? They got to do it themselves. And that's where patient education and survival training come in. When patients need that, the first person I call is Mary. <laughs> and if somebody is indeed at risk of hypoglycemia, the first thing I look at is food insecurity. Managing patients and food insecurity or food access issues really requires providers to think differently. 
the VA has recognized food insecurity and endorses like the establishment of, of clinical pantries. We are very, very fortunate to have some beautiful clinical pantries. In the year 2020, we expanded our clinical pantry program so that almost every single one of our community-based outpatient centers in Northeast Ohio has a pantry. And so if somebody gives me a positive response when I ask if they have food at home, I put in a consult for social work so that they can help them access any pantries or food programs within their zip code. And I also will give them a grocery bag with food in it. And I will help them with recipes. I'll help them so that they know what they're going to have for breakfast, what they're going to have for lunch, how to really use that bag of groceries so that they're not at risk of a bad hypoglycemic event. And there's times when I will send an instant message to the provider and ask for an adjustment in medication. Of course, it's the provider that will make that adjustment. Sometimes they'll ask me to go ahead and give a phone call to the patient to advise them on what the provider has asked. It's really quite wonderful. If the problem is food insecurity, having an intervention where you can provide them with with food is, is critically important. Man may not live by bread alone, but no bread, no life. So Mary, I wonder if you can address two things. Yes. First, the fifteen fifteen rule and dealing with hypoglycemia. And then for patients who, particularly who are on insulin regimens, carb counting in order to match their input with projected utilization based on the amount of insulin they take. So first, the fifteen fifteen rule. Sure. The fifteen fifteen rule stands for 15 grams of carb and 15 minutes. So there are several levels of hypoglycemia. They're defined level one is a glucose less than 70. Level two is a glucose of 54 or less. And level three is really when somebody is cognitively altered or has lost consciousness. When somebody has a glucose between 55 to 70, we say eat 15 grams of carbohydrate. What is that? It's four ounces of juice. If somebody has kidney failure, we say apple juice. Otherwise, the juice that most people have is orange juice. But four ounces of any juice is 15 grams of carbohydrate. Glucose tablets, three to four glucose tablets. Not one glucose tablet, but three to four glucose tablets. Put the timer on. Wait 15 minutes and recheck your blood sugar. If you're not above 70, repeat. If you're below 54 and functional, and you, you would double that amount of carbohydrate. Instead of 15 grams, you'd have 30 grams. So eight ounces of juice or six to eight glucose tablets. Hard candies work as well. A lot of people enjoy eating chocolate, but chocolate has a lot of fat in it, so it doesn't bring the blood sugar up rapidly. Skittles at Halloween 
I will tell people buy the bags of Skittles if you can, you know, kind of keep those scattered in various places in the event of a low blood sugar. One of those little packets of Skittles is going to be about 15 grams of carbohydrate. Let's say I'm on insulin and I'm feeling symptoms that seem to me like hypoglycemia and I measure my blood sugar and it's 85. What should I do? So I would say wash your hands and recheck. Um, sometimes people with diabetes have more than just diabetes. And so if it's still 85, it could be the degree of the drop or if it could be it, and and then we say, you know, just have have a half a sandwich or something. Um, but it, it could be something other than hypoglycemia that, that's causing those symptoms, especially if it's a rapid heart rate or dizziness. Um, I, I, I would hope that they would have a family member with them and be able to monitor that closely. And I would advise them to contact their, their physician. Do you have any comments on the use of glucagon? So if they are unconscious, if somebody has lost consciousness, they should always have glucagon in their home. And glucagon um, is, is an injectable. You must teach other people in the family where that glucagon is and how to inject the glucagon. Um, glucagon is rarely self-injected, but it can be. If somebody is really, really dizzy and they're intelligent enough to grab it, maybe their blood sugar is super low, but but they're intelligent enough to know what's going on, they can self-inject it. Typically, though, you train a family member on how to use that glucagon and how to inject it. Um, when you inject glucagon, make sure that the patient is lying on their side Um because they may actually they, they may actually vomit when it's injected. There's also now a dry nasal spray called Baximi that's also available and just being used now. Let's switch to our last topic, and that is carb counting as a means to prevent hypoglycemia, particularly in people who are treated with insulin, usually multiple injections such as basal bolus. With insulin, um, I always say, think of that basal, think of basement. It's that long acting insulin. Some people will inject it once a day. Others, it might not give a full 24 hours of coverage with. Bolus, think of a bowl of cereal. You inject mealtime insulin. Bolus insulin does two things. It corrects a high blood sugar and it also covers carbohydrate. So one of the things I like to do is to assess if an individual has really that cognitive capacity to identify foods that contain carbohydrate, and then the ability to quantify the amount of carbohydrate in a given meal. And then we can calculate a carb-insulin ratio. So for example, if you were to have two slices of toast for breakfast... Each slice of bread is 15 grams of carbohydrate. If a person is able to say that each slice of bread is 15 grams of carb, and if I told them 
for every 15 grams of carbohydrate, they need one unit of insulin. They would tell me they need two units of insulin for that breakfast meal. Now, if you add a glass of milk, that's another 12 grams of carb. So they would increase their insulin dose to three units of insulin to cover the carbohydrate for their meal. So in individuals that may not have access to food, and and I did have a gentleman, same scenario as mine, going through a divorce, um, had a beautiful home, didn't qualify for any assistance, but he had no money. He would go to the various coffee shops and pick up crackers. And that's what he was subsiding off of was just crackers. When I taught him a carb insulin ratio, he was delighted. I met him after a severe hypoglycemic event. And one of his adult daughters found him passed out in his bathroom. She called the squad. They transported him to the VA because he is a veteran. And he just was so gracious and so thankful that he could now adjust that mealtime insulin based on what he had available for his meal. So that carb-insulin ratio is, is a very nice tool in somebody with on multiple daily injections. Thank you very much, Mary. Uh, I think the fact that you got type 1 diabetes as a teenager, and here you are, I won't say exactly how many years later, but some years later, and you're doing great and doing wonderful things for your patients. Uh, there's a lot more to hypoglycemia that can be covered in 20 or 25 minutes, but at least we hope that this has given you a taste uh, and that you enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you again, Mary. Thank you very much. I think that nutrition counseling has always been important for patients with diabetes, and it can really be critical for those that are food insecure, especially during this COVID time, they may have difficulty just acquiring food. So working as a team, working with all the resources that are available. Thank you for inviting me again. I'd like to thank Mary Julius for joining me today. And a special thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.